You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 168, The Invasion of Norway, Part 6, The Battle for Oslofjord. This week, a big thank you goes out to Anthony and Ronnie for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Each of the areas that the Germans targeted in their invasion of Norway were important for their own reasons, but it would be hard to argue that the most important target for the German landings was the Norwegian capital of Oslo. The goal of the invasion was to quickly bring the Norwegians to the negotiating table to allow for some kind of agreement to be made which would prevent the German army from getting pulled into a long and costly campaign of conquest. The best way to do this was to take over the political center of the country and begin negotiations with either a captured government or at least one that was on the run from German troops. Of course, the Norwegian government and military understood the importance of Oslo, and it was the capital of their nation after all, and so there were defenses in place to prevent a seaborne invasion from taking place. The defenses of Oslo and the determination of the men who manned them would surprise the Germans resulting in even more drastic consequences than the staunch defense of Christiansand, which had damaged the Admiral Hipper. The approaches to Oslo fell under the command of the First Sea Defense District, with the district stretching from the Swedish border all the way to Ingersen in western Norway. They would receive information on April 8th that German ships had been spotted moving through Danish territorial waters, which meant that they could be headed to Norway. Just before 4 p.m. on the 8th, the commander of the district was informed that the British were moving out to try and intercept the German ships, and then a few hours later, orders were given to bring the defenses around Oslo to a higher state of alert. At around 11.30 p.m., the primary forts on the way to Oslo reported that they were as ready as they could be, with both their searchlights and their guns manned and ready to use. The smaller searchlights would prove to be mostly useless because of heavy fog, but the larger searchlights would be useful in the coming actions. Just a few minutes after the forts reported ready, two ships were spotted moving down the fjord towards them. These were the ships of the German task force assigned to the Oslo operation, and they were led by the German cruiser Blücher. The commander of the Blücher, Cummins, wanted to pass the forts at around 3.30 a.m. in the morning, but that meant that he actually had to enter Norwegian waters well before that, which is when they were spotted. 
The German ships would slowly move up the fjord at a speed of only about 10 knots, which gave the men on board plenty of time to build up their stress, which many first-hand accounts would talk about uh, after the war. They were not helped by the fact that it was foggy, and there was some growing morning light, and the combination of this meant that it was very challenging to see much of anything on shore, because a lot of the stuff on shore was still in the shadows. The first shots to be fired by the Norwegians would be from the Raoi Fortress on the outer edges of Oslofjord. The fort and the German ships would shine searchlights at one another, which made any spotting very challenging for both sides. But though Norwegians were still able to fire two warning shots, and they were able to see that the ships did not stop, and so they fired the following shots actually at the Blücher. Now, these shots were observed by the Germans, but they didn't actually hit the German ships. This encounter would be reported up to Norwegian High Command, which was combined with other sightings of the German ships as they continued on their way, because they were still about 75 kilometers from reaching Oslo, and there were still Norwegian fortifications that they still had to pass. Roughly two-thirds of the way from Raoi to Oslo was another one of these forts, Oskarsberg. Oskarsberg was critical to the defense of the capital due to its position at one of the narrowest areas of the fjord, making it pretty much perfectly positioned to defend and and kind of interdict any enemy movement towards Oslo. The main guns at Oskarsberg were three 28cm Krupp guns that were in open but shielded batteries on an island in the middle of the fjord, but these were joined also by three 15cm guns on the mainland and then six smaller guns in some other areas. There were also some fixed torpedo tubes that could be used to fire into the channel in an underground torpedo battery, which was completely unknown to the Germans. The battery was old, having been part of the original construction back in 1900, and the nine torpedoes that it could fire were of similar vintage, but they would prove that sometimes age doesn't matter. The final piece of the fortifications that could have been used was the ability to lay a minefield across the channel to prevent any ships from transiting past the fort. But these took time to lay down, and by the time that the orders to prepare the fort for action arrived, there simply was not time to deploy the mines. Because obviously they weren't out there all the time because this was used for shipping all the time. The lack of time also made it difficult to get the guns manned and prepared with the biggest problem being the biggest guns, the 28cm guns. The problem was that it took about 11 men to load and fire one of these guns, but there were only 28 total officers and men at the fort on the night of the 8th, which meant that they could only really work two of the largest guns at the Norwegians' disposal. The commander of the fort, Oberst Eriksson, decided that two of the guns would be manned, and then he would use about 70 non-combatant personnel that were present at the fort to move ammunition to the guns and to perform other kind of service and support tasks. The torpedo battery would also be manned with enough men to fire the torpedoes. The manpower situation on the mainland, where some other guns were located, was a bit better, but many of the men in those forts were quite raw and had only arrived a few weeks before for training on the guns that they were now going to be asked to put into action. As the Germans approached Oskarsberg, the heavy cruiser Blücher was in the lead, and when they were first spotted, 
Ericsson inside of the fort had a decision to make. Beyond the notification that had been received hours earlier that German ships were moving up the fjord, he had received no further instructions from the government or his commanding officer. No information about the invasion had reached him, and as far as he was concerned, Norway was still a neutral country, which put a lot of weight on his shoulders. If this was not a German invasion force, he might be bringing Norway into the war by firing at these ships, but if he did not fire, he was allowing ships to just wander past his guns while doing nothing, and if they were executing an invasion, he would have opened the door for them, essentially. Just before 4 a.m., he would make up his mind to engage the ships, sending orders to the torpedo battery that they should open fire on the ships when presented with the opportunity while he worked with the artillery guns. With these orders being given, at around 4.20 a.m., firing would begin. Now in April, at the latitude of Oskarsberg, dawn was breaking as the first shots were fired from the fort, with the range to the Blücher being just 1,800 meters, which was not very much in terms of artillery distance at this point in time. The very first shell would hit Blücher's superstructure just below the bridge, and the second would hit the side of the ship, destroying a secondary gun mount and killing some army soldiers that were gathered in the decks below. On board Blücher, orders were given to return fire, but it was very difficult to see anything ashore, and so it was hard to know what to even shoot at. While the first shells had come as a surprise to the crew of the Blücher, but things were about to get a lot worse, because as soon as Oskarsberg opened fire, so did every other gun within range on the mainland, with their commanders no longer being hesitant at all to fire at the ships. These shore batteries only had small guns, 15 centimeters or so, but they were able to pump a lot of shells into the Blücher very rapidly. The biggest problem that the Blücher had was that even these small shells were able to easily penetrate and damage the ship's superstructure, given the very small range that they were operating at. This caused fires to begin in the upper works, with a fire consuming the entire center of the ship by the time that the Blücher had mostly made its way past the Norwegian guns. And just as it got past those guns, it came into view of the torpedo battery. These torpedoes were in fixed tubes, so the officer in charge of them, Anderson, had precisely one chance to fire them at the German ship before it was no longer within the kill zone. But just before 4.30, and with the ship on fire, it was easy to see exactly what he was shooting at, although it was moving slower than expected. So Anderson kind of played with the, the timing on the torpedoes, and then he pressed the firing key when the range was only 500 meters. Anderson would later say that he had never thought that he would actually fire these torpedoes in anger, but that did not stop him from using them in the moment. Two torpedoes were fired, and both would hit. The crewmen of the Blücher later recalling that they felt and heard heavy explosions. The torpedoes had hit very close together near one of the port side boiler rooms, and even if the crew of the Blücher did not yet know it, these torpedoes sealed the fate of the ship. As the Blücher was getting hit by torpedoes, Behind the German flagship, the Deutschland-class cruiser Lutzow was now receiving its own fire from some of the Norwegian shore batteries. But after seeing what had happened to the Hipper, after a few shells hit the Lutzow, the captain of the ship decided that on this specific morning, caution was the better part of valor, and he ordered a retreat, with the other German ships also abandoning the move up the ford to conform to the movements of Lutzow. They left behind the Blücher, but... That's just how it is sometimes, I guess. 
On the Blucher, fires continued to rage along the upper decks, and it was starting to set off ammunition explosions throughout the ship. Now, while the naval ammunition was kept uh, deeper inside the ship, the Blucher was also carrying a large amount of ammunition and supplies for the men that were supposed to be put ashore in Oslo. And this ammunition, which was just as explosive as the naval ammunition, was far more exposed. To make the situation somehow even more confusing, at some point, smoke canisters began to ignite from the blaze, covering the ship in a thick artificial smoke to go along with the very real smoke from the fires that were creating the fake artificial smoke. During damage control efforts, the anchor was also dropped to try and keep the ship from running ashore. And over the next several hours, the ship would kind of circle around its anchor as the tides and wind changed as the men on board tried to get to the fires under control. But regardless of the exact positioning of the Blucher at any given point in time, it was really just a matter of time before the out-of-control fire finally made its way to something even more explosive than the infantry ammunition. And at 5.30 a.m., that's exactly what happened. It was at that time that the fire reached one of the 10.5-centimeter magazines, and the explosion deep inside the ship would rupture the bulkheads around the boiler room and the seal on the fuel tanks. The fuel rapidly leaked out onto the sea and caught fire. At the same time, the ruptured seals and the ruptured bulkheads from the explosion caused the flooding from the torpedoes to suddenly massively expand. Without any other options, the captain ordered the crew to begin to abandon ship. But the only way to deliver this message was man-to-man because all of the ship-wide communications had been destroyed. As the decision was made to abandon the ship, work began on trying to slip the anchor chain so that the ship would now actually drift closer to shore before the men were in the water. Basically, they wanted to beach the ship at this point. But as the ship started to list, slipping the chain became impossible. When the list reached 45 degrees, the order could no longer be delayed and the crew began to abandon ship. Men jumped overboard and began swimming to shore, which was at least 300 meters distant. And while there were many survivors, hundreds of sailors and soldiers would die. The exact number seems to be uncertain due to German attempts to downplay the disaster during the war and then their long occupation of Norway, which would make it difficult for others to come verify their story. But the numbers do seem to range from around 350 to over 1,000. Back on the Lutzau, the captain of the now lead German ship did not really know what had happened to the Blucher. All that was known was that the cruiser had taken heavy fire from the Norwegian guns, was burning, but had continued on. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The retreat of the Lutzow and the other German ships caused a lull in the fighting around Ostersburg, but in many other areas around Oslo, the fighting continued to expand. Back at Rahoy, uh, further out in the fjord, the situation was very rapidly getting serious when reports reached the fort that German officers previously landed from the sea had been asking around for how long it would take to get to the fort from the mainland. Shortly after these reports arrived, another set of reports also arrived that there was a German landing near one of the fort's batteries, and so a hasty ground defense force was thrown together. Every available body on the island, including gun crews from the other guns and anti-aircraft units, were thrown together. Bringing together all of these men brought the number up to about a hundred, and while they had two machine guns, they had no real ability to actually attack the German troops that had landed. And so all they could really do is create a perimeter around the German landings and prevent them from taking over more of the island. Then at around 8 a.m., orders arrived from Outer Oslo Fjord Naval Defense District that all hostilities were to end and that all defenses were to cease firing. Hesitant to follow these orders out of a concern that they might be a German fabrication, the commander of Roy, Major Inger, worked on verifying the authenticity of the order. He would determine that it was a genuine order, and so he ordered all of his men under his command to cease firing. This would be the fate of many small Norwegian units over the course of April 9th, a general feeling that they had the local situation somewhat under control, but they were then forced to surrender as the general situation completely collapsed around them. While the landings were happening at Raoi, back at Oskarsberg, the failure of the initial German advance caused the Luftwaffe to be called in to bomb the defenders of the fort. Luftwaffe bombers would arrive at about 7.45 a.m. to drop their bombs, with the bombs being dropped over the next several hours. Not continuously, kind of off and on over the next several hours. At midday, the Lutzal moved in to do a bit of shore bombardment. All of this caused a large amount of smoke and dust, but was not really that effective against the defenses or their defenders. Even with the fort seeming to be damaged, Captain Thiel of the Lutzal was still very hesitant to give things another go, and instead moved his ships to the nearby port of Horten. When they arrived at Horten, he found it already occupied by German troops, and troops from the naval task force were landed to reinforce them until they could be moved to Oslo. At around this time, the Norwegian Admiral Smith Johnson, who had commanded the naval bases at Horten, was brought on board the Lutzow and was asked to order Oskarsberg to surrender. Smith Johansson refused, with the reasoning that after he had surrendered Horten to the Germans, he no longer had the authority to give any orders. Back near Oskarsberg, the next German move was to land troops at Drobach, which was a Norwegian fort on the mainland near Oskarsberg. The commander of the garrison, Captain Inger, not to be confused with that Major Inger from Roy, knew that the Germans were landing but was hesitant to open fire without explicit orders from Oskarsberg, which did not arrive. And so instead of preparing a resistance, Inger left his bunker to open discussions with the German officer who appeared to be in charge of the situation, and a surrender was quickly agreed to. 
back on Oscarsburg, the situation was obviously quickly deteriorating. Observers from the fort could clearly see the landings that had taken place at Drobach, and there were reports that the Germans were already in control of Oslo, that the government had fled the capital, and that other attacks were happening all over Norway. After discussions with his other officers, Eriksson, seeing no real point in further resistance, decided to open discussions with the Germans. Eriksson was quite the negotiator, or at least was stubborn enough to get better terms than some other garrisons on the morning of the 9th. The agreement which was eventually reached after several hours of negotiations and the German desire to just get it over with was that the enlisted men and civilians from the fort would be released as soon as possible, and the officers would simply stay at the fortress for the time being. The Norwegian flag was also allowed to fly next to the German flag the next morning. It was on that morning, the 10th of April, that the German ships led by the Lutzow were finally able to pass through the areas around Oscarsburg, reaching Oslo at 10.45 in the morning. The efforts of the forts in the fjord, led by the men at Oscarsburg, had delayed the German naval force for around 30 hours. After the war, Ericsson would have to sit through two different investigative committees into his actions, with the charges that he acted without specific orders during the events of April 9th and 10th. Unfortunately, he would die in 1958, before his actions would be exonerated, followed by a statue being placed of him at Oscarsburg in 1995. While the naval situation was working itself out, there were many other German operations occurring around Oslo, with one of them being an attack on the Fornaboo airfield to the southwest of the capital. Fornaboo would be the third airfield that was seen as critical to the success of the German invasion, with Alberg and Sola being the other two, both of which we covered last episode. At Fornaboo, the plan was much the same as at the other airfields, with about 340 German paratroopers dropping on the airfield clear it for a large number of infantry to be landed from transport planes. While at Arburg and Sola, the plan was generally followed quite closely. At Fornaboo, things began to go off script when some of the paratroop transports ran into clouds and fog on their flights in. This would cause the first wave of transports, and all of the paratroopers, to turn around and head back to base. There was just one problem. The second wave of transports carrying the infantry were already in the air and were on their way to land at the airport, and they would not receive the information that the paratroopers had turned back. Over Fornaboo, there were also eight BF-110s that were in position to provide air support for the paratroopers, but then they were late, and they continued to be late. This was a serious problem for the German pilots, because they were planning to land and refuel from the airfield that the paratroopers were about to capture, and after orbiting and and waiting for the paratroopers to arrive, they did not have the fuel to make it back to Germany. Just as things were becoming very troubling, finally the German transport planes arrived, but they did not fly over the airfield to drop paratroopers, but instead lined up with the runway to land. These were the first transports of the second wave, who just assumed that the airfield was already in German hands and they were going in to land. Now, a fully loaded transport aircraft isn't exactly the most nimble aircraft, but as soon as the first transport landed, Norwegian machine guns opened up on it, causing the pilot to immediately go to max power to take back off. At this point, the pilots of the BF-110s needed something to happen immediately, They were running on fumes, and some of the pilots were having to shut down one of their engines to save fuel. And so, a few of the BF-110s started to land 
on the Norwegian runway that was still controlled by the Norwegian troops. And the others, at that same time, tried to suppress the Norwegian machine guns as much as possible. This then caused German transports that were still arriving to believe that the airfield was now under German control, and so they landed, even though, again, it was not under German control. As soon as the first German transport successfully landed and troops began to get off of the aircraft successfully, the defenders were in serious trouble because they could not stem the tide of the arrival of German troops and were not numerous enough to launch any kind of counterattack. The commander of the defenders pulled his troops back, not really seeing any other options. With the airfield finally under German control, the three BF-110s that were still capable of flight were refueled from Norwegian fuel supplies, which had helpfully been left intact, and then they provided air support for more and more German troops to land. There were several German and Norwegian casualties, and two German aircraft were destroyed with five damaged, but the overall attack on Fornebu was a really lucky break for the Germans. It could have been an absolute disaster, but, you know, some lucky breaks and a lack of hesitation from the officers and men involved and some unfortunate decisions made by the Norwegians resulted in just another German success. The German planes over Fornebu were far from the only Luftwaffe aircraft over Oslo on the morning of April 9th. At dawn, 25 German bombers were flying over the capital, with 14 more arriving shortly thereafter. The purpose of these initial aircraft was more intimidation rather than active bombing. They were trying to move the Norwegians towards surrender, instead of a long, drawn-out resistance. Some of them were then dispatched to various areas like Raoi and Oscarsburg to actually do some bombing. However, while the German aircraft were flying over Oslo, one of the remarkable things was how few German troops were actually in the capital that morning. The plan had been for around 900 infantry to fly into Fornebu, and for some of those troops to quickly move into Oslo proper to prepare the way for the naval landings, which should occur just a few hours later. But then the ships that were supposed to be executing those landings did not appear, because they were held up by Oscarsburg. This meant that for the first day of the invasion, there were only about a thousand German troops in the capital, and the numbers would not really begin to expand until the Lutzow and the German ships finally made it to Oslo on the morning of the 10th. This disrupted German plans and delayed the arrival of the command staff for the invasion simply because Oslo was not secure. Unfortunately for the Norwegians, though, they were having many problems of their own simply due to the speed of German actions and the widespread nature of the German attacks. Throughout the early morning hours of April 9th, reports were flooding into the Norwegian leaders, both political and military, of German attacks seemingly everywhere. Stavanger, Sola, Trondheim, Oslo, Bergen, Narvik, all experienced German attacks. Some would go very poorly for the Norwegians, like at Sola, while others would go remarkably well, like at Stavanger and Bergen. At Bergen, the German cruiser Konigsberg would join the list of German ships that were surprised by the power of Norwegian coastal fortifications, causing enough damage that it could not sail back to Germany out of concern for its seaworthiness. It would later be attacked by British aircraft and then abandoned by the Germans. But damaging a few German naval vessels was not going to be enough to stop the tide of the German invasion. Next episode, we'll dig deeper into the Norwegian government's response to the unfolding invasion, as they first tried to determine what was even happening, and then they tried to determine if they had any viable path forward. <laughs> 